0: Following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Anybody ever read um, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol? And we've all seen the Muppet One, which is great. Um, <laughs> light the lamp, not the rat, precisely. Yes. Uh, Christmas Carol starts out with this really morbid kind of beginning. Uh, Jacob Marley was dead. Right? And what he says is. Uh, This must be distinctly understood, or nothing wonderful can come of the story I am going to relate. (laughs) So, in a very Dickensian kind of way, what I want to say to you is this this is a series about how God is like Jesus. This must be distinctly understood, or nothing wonderful can come (laughs) of the story I'm going to relate. In other words, that context, the context of thinking about a Christ-like God, is the context and really the only context in which today I'm going to talk about violence in the Bible and how we can square it up with these ideas. So I have said this um, many times. This is our, uh, our, our, the chorus of our song or our mantra, if you will pardon the uh, allusion to a different religious tradition. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. Jesus. There's never been a time when God was not like Jesus. God's people haven't always understood this, but now we do. It's important to have that still in our heads because it is both uh, the source of and the explanation for the, uh, I think, the most astute criticism um, or question that has arisen in the course of thinking about God this way. The, the question comes, or the criticism comes, from the second and third sentences. The ones that say, God has always been like Jesus, there's never been a time that God was not like Jesus. Right? The idea that the God whose heart is revealed in the sacrificial, self-emptying love of Christ is the same God who made the universe, the same God who called Abraham, the same God who shepherded the people of Israel and apparently the same God who in the Hebrew Bible, uh, a.k.a. the Old Testament, uh, I tend to use those terms uh, interchangeably, who uh, is given to us with a picture that is not self-emptying and appears not to be peaceful or always nonviolent. In fact, what we see sometimes is a god who appears positively bloodthirsty i i could read you lots of examples but let's just limit ourselves to a couple ones right at our confession we looked at psalm 137 verse 9 which you know is a part of our holy inspired scriptural canon and seems to applaud the idea of of murdering small children. There are parts of the Bible in the story of Israel where they, the, the people of God are commanded and then punished if they disobey to go in and kill everyone. When you conquer the city, leave no one alive. Not just the soldiers, not just the priests who are practicing idolatry and pagan religion. But the mothers and their children and the aunties and uncles and the grandmas and grandpas and the family dog leave no one alive. That is the command of God in these conquest narratives. So how can I say that God has always been like Jesus, that there's never been a time that God is not like Jesus? It's a fair and astute question. Now, I should say this because this was me for a while. It may be that this does not bother you in the least. You don't have any trouble with this. That's okay. I want to respect where you are but I'm going to ask you to respect where a lot of other people are. You should be aware of the fact that there are people who you love who are uh, absolutely undone by this, who cannot comprehend it in any way, and who are losing or have already lost their faith in God as a result of looking too closely at the Bible that we love. And you should also be aware that there may come a day when that does describe you. There came a day for me when it yesterday didn't bother me and today it did. And so um, you should take this time (laughs) to to begin to think about it in in a more peaceful place where the ground seems a little bit more solid so that if and when that day comes, when it starts to trouble you more, you have already begun the process of of figuring out how you're going to respond so i'm going to tell you up front there is no easy answer to that question there is nothing i will say this morning that's going to make you walk out of this room going gee i don't know why that ever bothered me it's such a simple response there's nothing like that if anybody claims that it's that easy they're selling you a bill of goods And so, I'm not going to tell you that I have a quick and easy answer uh, for this very difficult and challenging question. What I want to do instead is try to give you a framework for how to think about this. Not tell you what to think about it, but give you a framework for how to think about it. Okay? So, if God is like Jesus and always has been, and if Jesus responds to sin, not with wrath and not with violence, but with love, And as a matter of fact, with death, his own death, how do we explain the wrath and violence that we see in the Old Testament? The short but not simple answer is already found in the chorus of the song. It's already there in the mantra. It's the part that says, God's people haven't always understood this. God's people haven't always understood that God is like Jesus. And this sermon will be an explanation of what I mean by that. Unfortunately, that's all that this sermon will be. Uh, There's all kinds of other questions that that will raise, and I'm just going to run out of time and not be able to answer those questions. There's all kinds of other parts to this problem that this maybe doesn't help you figure out, and I don't have time to do that either. So um, I will promise to you that I'm going to go deeper with this in a couple of ways. The first way is that uh, on May 29th, when we're having that special combined one service and we have the cookout afterwards, instead of a sermon, we'll do a Q&A, all right? We have this tradition in Artisan, we call it a BBQ Q&A, right? um, and so uh, we'll do the Q&A instead of the sermon, and so it, be thinking about what questions this raises, what questions all of that I've talked about for the last seven weeks have been raised and I would uh, love to you can send them to me ahead of time or you can just surprise me in the moment and I'll do my best um, and then secondly I'm 90% sure um, and be, I, I'm only not 100% sure because I, I hate making the final decision about anything so I like to keep my options open even when they're not um, I'm 90% sure that I'm going to do a full series in the end of June the last three weeks of June called How to Read the Bible Like a Christian Right, um, and I'll I'll uh, go into, uh, with a little bit more depth, how we can approach the biblical text, including these difficult ones. But for today, what I want to do is offer two ideas um, that will help us to build that framework that I was talking about. Um, Think of it like two handles, right? Um, uh, My friend Mike, who's not here, has a a guitar amp that weighs like 79 pounds. It's a, a Vox AC30. And it used to be that they put one handle in the middle and you had to kind of like carry it like this. But now they put two handles uh, perpendicular to the middle handle, one on each end. Right? And you can lift something heavy if you have those two handles. So I'm going to give you two handles uh, that will help you lift this. Right? Here's the first handle. This is the first idea. We need to read the Bible that we have, not the Bible that we wish we had. Read the Bible we have, not the Bible we wish we had, and I might add this, not the Bible that we are told that we have, not the Bible that some people still believe we have, the Bible that we have. There's a couple things I remind people about when I start to describe the Bible. Um, The first one is that the Bible is not a book, the Bible is a library that contains many books. You've heard me say this before, right? The Bible isn't a single monolithic book. It's a library that contains lots of books. And the second one is that the Bible contains a grand, dramatic story. And that story unfolds in various ways, sort of like a a five-act play. If you were here a couple summers ago when we read, as our summer read, The Blue Parakeet uh, that author, Scott McKnight, goes into that. N.T. Wright is a brilliant Bible scholar who, who describes things, uh, describes the Bible like a, a, a five act play, um, in which we get to improvise the, the final act, which is really such a beautiful um, metaphor. But both of these things, uh, both of these concepts, are going to be very important for us if we want to read the Bible that we actually have. It's not a book, it's a library, and it contains a a grand story that unfolds over the course of Scripture, and in fact is still unfolding in, in history and in the present day, and will be unfolding in the future. So that there are parts of Scripture that were written by different authors at different times that tell the same story in different ways. Let me say that again. There are parts of the Bible written by different authors in different times that tell the same story in different ways. Some people um, call this uh, contradictions in the Bible. And uh, there's been a great deal of ink and uh, HTML spilled (laughs) about the many contradictions in the Bible. And some people want to explain them all away and say, no, that's not a contradiction. It says two different things, but that's not a contradiction. And some people want to say, see, it is a contradiction. Therefore, the entire thing is a load of garbage, and you should throw it away. And I'm going to argue for space in the middle. Let me give you a couple examples. Uh, King David, at a certain point in in the history of Israel took a census. He wasn't supposed to do this. Now, it's not exactly clear why he wasn't supposed to do this. Maybe it was he was trying to measure his own power instead of God's or something like that. Suffice it to say, he was not supposed to do this. This story is told in two places in Scripture. It's told in 2 Samuel, and it's also told in 1 Chronicles. Different authors from different times telling the same story in different way with different conclusions. In the 2 Samuel account, it says this, Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. Why did David take the census in 2 Samuel? Who told him to do it? God. God then punishes David for taking the census. The Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated, and seventy thousand people from Dan to Beersheba died. Um, I don't know about you, but I think this this presents a morally objectionable picture of God. There are ways that you can contort yourself to explain it, but I think it's problematic my contention is that whoever wrote First Chronicles also thought it was problematic because First Chronicles tells the story this way. Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. In the 1 Chronicles telling, who tells David to take the census? Satan. Now, if you Google the question why was it wrong to take a census of Israel or something like that the first result will be a website that tries very hard to explain to you that the reason it was wrong for David to take a census is because Satan is the one who tempted him to do it and in the course of making that um, I think fairly shaky conclusion uh, it also says now there's this other place in the Bible where it looks like God told him to take the census, but you can be assured that it was Satan. Okay. This is the kind of thing I'm talking about. Uh, this is an easy target, right? We can... we can, But it is, it is the first Google search result, so it's, people are going to find it. Here's a second example I want to give you. Here's something that you read in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 28:63. Just as it pleased the Lord to make you prosper and increase in number so it will please him to ruin and destroy you. Okay? That's a, a statement about God. It's not even a statement of an event. That's from Torah. In the prophets, prophet Ezekiel thirty-three eleven says this, As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So which is it? Does it please God to ruin and destroy wicked people? Or does God take no pleasure in the death of the wicked? These are statements about God. They're not just events that you could sort of misinterpret or apply. They're statements about the nature of God, the character of God. Now, here's what I would say. What has not happened between 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles and what has not happened between Deuteronomy and Ezekiel is that God's character has changed. God's character, in my contention, is unchanging. There's never been a time when God was not like Jesus. Rather, what is happening here is that the human authors of the Bible... are disagreeing about the character of God. And they're disagreeing about the cause and the source of evil. And I would actually say they're not just disagreeing, but they're actually evolving in their understanding of who God is. God's people haven't always understood that he is like Jesus. But now we do. So, when I say read the Bible that we have, not the one we wish we had, and not the one that people tell us is actually there, this is what I mean. This is the Bible that we have. The Bible, particularly the Old Testament, is multivocal, and it contains internal disputes about the nature of God and the life of faith. And since that's the Bible we have, that's the Bible that we need to read, and that is the Bible that I contend we can still love. So to read it and love it well, we need to move from um, what author Derek Flood calls a place of, of unquestioning obedience to a place of faithful questioning. Part of the argument that that author makes is that Jesus and Paul actually read the Bible, not with unquestioning obedience, but with faithful questioning. And that's some of what I hope to get to in that series that I'm 90% sure I'm going (laughs) to preach. Now, before I get... That's the the first handle. The first handle is read the Bible we have, not the Bible we wish we have. Before I get to the the second handle, I want to remind you of one of the central passages from Scripture in this series. One of the key supporting texts for the mantra that God is like Jesus. It's Hebrews one, verses one through three. You've heard this a number of times and you're going to hear it again right now. Long ago God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by a what? A son whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also created the worlds. He, the Son, Jesus, is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. And He sustains all things by His powerful Word. Right there in that verse, you see that the revelation we have in Jesus is superior to all the revelation we have had before or since. And that includes all of Scripture. And so this second handle is something that may sound a little bit shocking the first time I say it, but which I think is crucial, literally crucial, look up the word crucial. (laughs) And it's this. The Bible is not the perfect reflection of God. Only Jesus is. Shocking. The Bible is not the perfect reflection of God. Only Jesus is. We Christians worship a triune God, not a holy book. We have a holy book, we do not worship the book. We worship the God. What Scripture does is point us to Jesus. It tells that grand story that unfolds bit by bit, multivocally, and which finds its climax in Jesus. In his death, in his resurrection. This is an absolutely central point for us to understand if we want to even come close to making sense of the violence in the Bible. Formerly, God spoke through the prophets and all the writings of Scripture. But more recently, in these last days and more completely and more fully and more perfectly he has spoken to us through a son to borrow uh, a phrase from the apostle Paul Jesus shows us a more excellent way Jesus is what God has to say Now, I'm not the smartest person, but I'm smart enough to hear one objection to what I just said. And it would be to quote the very words of Jesus. And so let me go to that place now. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, very early on in this, in this magnum opus, like I called it last week, says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. You know this verse? I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them Now in that same sermon not very many verses after that statement Jesus says many times the following thing You have heard it said X often quoting the law But I say to you why letter Y. So, it is facile, in my probably not very humble opinion, to quote Jesus in Matthew 5.17, saying, I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And to take that to mean that everything still applies exactly as it did at the beginning. Because he himself, the same dude, <laughs> moments later says, You've heard it said this way, I'm saying it to you this way. So, what is Jesus saying when he says, I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets? Well, he's responding, at least in part, to the accusation that had been levied against him by the teachers of the law Hey, you! You can't heal on the Sabbath. You can't do this. You can't do that. You are trying to abolish the law and the prophets. And Jesus says to them, Don't think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What does the word fulfill mean? Well, it means something in English. The word in Greek means like to perfect or complete. So what Jesus is not saying is, I've come to take the status quo and give it to you once again. What he's saying is, I've come to take what you've received and to perfect it, to make it what it was always meant to be. I'm going to flash on the screen here a couple of things for those of you who are like super duper Bible nerd homework people to go look up. Because I, I don't know if I'll get to them in this series that I'm 99% sure I'm going to do. Um, <clears throat> so Aaron, if you could put that slide up there. There's a couple of things I want you to look at on your own. I want you to look at what Jesus does with Scripture when he quotes it and what Paul does, the Apostle Paul, when he quotes Scripture. Right? So Jesus, in Luke four eighteen and 19, um, reads from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. right? Isaiah 61. Look at what he reads in, uh, in that text. And then go look at Isaiah 61 and look where he stopped and what he did not include. Do the same thing with Apostle Paul in Romans 15. In Romans 15, Paul is quoting Psalm 18 and Deuteronomy 32. Look at what, now Paul's even more blatant with what he does. He doesn't just stop short of something, he like skips verses. He goes along, skips a verse, picks it up later. It's almost like uh, the editors of the Revised Common Lectionary when they, when they come across a psalm that has violence in it. They're like, let's read the first verse about how good God is and the last three verses about how good God is and we'll skip all the stuff in the middle about how God's going to smite the, the, the snot out of all of our enemies. <laughs> There's a joke in seminary circles that Paul would fail a class on uh, biblical exegesis. Right? But he's doing it for a reason. It's because the revelation that he had in Jesus Christ is superior to what he received from the Hebrew Bible. And what he's doing is intentional. Don't think that the people didn't know he skipped those verses. All right, I was just going like, to be really quick with this, and now I'm going on this rant. It's so good, though. I promise you, it's so good. Go look it up. All right. See, I told you I'd run out of time. So here's Two handles. Read the Bible we have, not the one we wish we had. And remember that the Bible is not the perfect reflection of God. Only Jesus is. Now, please understand something. I love the Bible. I love to study the Bible. I love the challenge that comes with trying to understand this beautiful Complicated, ancient, multivocal text. I think the Bible contains profound meaning. I think it contains God's words for us. I consider the Bible to be authoritative and true with a capital T. Most importantly, though, I think the Bible points us to Jesus. I wish I had a lot more time to go into all of that side of things because having heard what I just preached especially if you walked in here and never heard me say anything about the Bible before you're going to be like "I guy doesn't think the Bible is all that great please understand I love the Bible but I love Jesus way more and I hope that that's true for you too so let's pray God, we are grateful that you allow us to be honest. We are thankful for what some people call contradictions in the Bible. Because in those contradictions, when we see them, we see dispute and disagreement and possibly even evolution of thought. And Lord, don't we know that that's what we do too? We disagree we dispute, we evolve. Help us to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. In all we do, including when we read the Scriptures. By the power of Your Holy Spirit, we pray for wisdom and guidance and understanding. And most of all, we pray for sensitivity to the very real work that you have done in the world and which you would love to continue to do and which you call us to join us in doing with you. Give us strength, we pray, O Lord. Amen. I want to invite you now to come and take communion together as a church as a community of faith, as people who are trying to walk this difficult road together as one body. We are one body in receiving His body. Our table is open to all who are seeking to follow Jesus in this place today. If you'd like to receive personal prayer, there'll be a member of the prayer team here who would be happy to pray with you. However you respond to these Words. Heed the call of the Holy Spirit in your life. Our table's open. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.